Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. It is Thursday, June 1st. I'm Scott Bland, your host, and you are listening to Politico's Nerdcast. We have another packed show for you today. Leading off, President Donald Trump announced Thursday that the United States will pull out of the Paris Climate Agreement, fulfilling a big campaign process and giving us a window into who's wielding power in the West Wing at this particular moment. And as we know, that leaderboard is not a particularly stable one. We'll also dig deeper into one West Wing staffer in particular, Jared Kushner, and the escalating issues he's facing in the Russia probe right now. And then we'll turn our eyes to Congress, which is, believe it or not, still racing to get some policy done while the Russia circus and other circus-like things dominate headlines. And we'll talk a little bit about some of the internal deadlines that uh, members of Congress are facing. Uh, But first, before we jump into that, remember, please subscribe and rate us and write written reviews if you have the time on iTunes or your preferred podcast platform. We are always looking for ways to improve and grow the Nerdcast, and so we would love to hear from you. In that vein, remember, you can email us if you want to. Our question line is open at nerdcast at politico.com. All right, with that, let's jump right in. Greetings to our panel this week. Hello, Charlie Matessian. Hello, Scott Bland. Ken Vogel. That's me. Hi. And Nancy Cook. Hey, guys. Great to be back from vacation. Great to have you back from vacation. All right. Our first data point this week is the number two. That's how many countries have rejected the Paris Climate Agreement before today, Syria and Nicaragua. And now, with President Trump's announcement, the United States is joining that small club, and he's fulfilling a campaign promise and pulling out of the Carbon Emission Reduction Pact. So, Nancy... Trump and his White House injected some suspense into this process over the week. But was this ever really in doubt, leaving the Paris Climate Agreement? Well, I think actually there was a lack of clarity about what they were going to do, largely because there's all these different factions in the White House that have very different ideas about what the Trump administration should do on policy. And so I think ultimately, you know, he is going to pull out. That's what he said in the campaign. But there's all these people like uh, mostly from the New York wing of the White House, as we call it, like Gary Cohen, who may potentially become the chief of staff, who's the head of the National Economic Council and Jared Kushner and Ivanka who were sort of uh, skeptical of the idea that Trump should necessarily pull out of this. And they were really fighting with the Steve Bannon wing of the West Wing that really wanted to pull out. And, you know, so there's been this ongoing sort of fight in the White House over this for months. And the thing is, is that Trump is so influenced by whoever he talks to last that there has been quite a lot of back and forth and a lot of leaks in the media over what's going to happen. They finally decided on it this week, and they're going to announce on Thursday this rollout of what it actually looks like. But I think that, you know, it was in doubt at at certain points. And also Trump really wanted to talk about it on his European, uh, like of his trip that he just came back from. He's getting a lot of pressure from business leaders like Apple's Tim Cook and a lot of European leaders not to pull out of it. And so I think, you know, him coming back and sort of settling into the White House and being influenced by this uh, nationalist wing of the party like Steve Bannon is really what's making the mark. But there was a lot of back and forth for the last few weeks on this. Yeah, in fact, he uh, w- when he went on this foreign trip, 
Gary Cohen actually said something that really struck me. He said, he wants to learn. He's learning about this issue. And I'm thinking like, that is bad messaging. Trump does not want to hear that he's learning about something, that he doesn't know about something, and that he's open to being persuaded, even if that may be the case. That to me seemed like a bit of a step too far, maybe an error by Gary Cohn, if his goal was in fact to sway him. And in fact, we, our Andrew Restucia and Josh Dawsey reported this morning in their TikTok of how we got to this decision that some folks in the White House said that they were hoping that some of these European leaders would be more persuasive and they wound up being surprisingly tepid in their appeals to try to get Trump to come around to their position, that struck me as a bit of like retroactive spinning. And so too, frankly, does the Ivanka stuff. Like that always uh, sticks in my craw when we see these stories like Ivanka wants Trump, wants her father to take a position that is, you know, sort of more moderate or centrist. We saw this on uh, gay rights where they got credit after the fact for something that Trump didn't do, encouraging him to uphold these Obama era workplace discrimination protections for federal contractors when it comes to gay, lesbian, transgender, bisexual employees. You know, they, they got this very flattering story about how they won the day on that, but then they were silent when Trump did uh, end up revoking protections that allowed transgender students to use the public bathroom of their choice. So they were silent on that, and yet here they are. And it all it strikes me as a little bit of like a branding thing for them. You know, they're worried about like their brand and in New York, where they're from, that if they are seen as complicit as the Saturday Night Live sketch famously uh, cast them, you know, in rolling back the, the, you know, the Paris Accord or in some of these measures that are less supportive of gay rights, and it would sort of hurt their brand. And didn't Cohn use the E word? Um, I, I, I thought he said yeah, he was evolving. Not learning, and that to me, uh, I think is, that's right. For conservatives, that's dog whistle language because no one ever evolves towards a conservative <laughs> position. When you hear in Washington that a politician is evolving, it means a Republican is moving leftward. So that was nails on a chalkboard language to many conservatives. I agree with what you said, Ken, about the, the branding idea, but I do think that there are real policy differences in the White House that they do battle over, and that that is not total BS. I mean, yeah, I, think I mean, that- I just. My my thing is more with Ivanka and Jared specifically. I agree. Gary Cohn is is you know much more. So Gary Cohn's a Democrat. He's much more centrist on some of these you know positions. He's he's you know he's sort of a free trader. He's a he's a globalist, as Steve Bannon would call him. Uh, and so yes, I could see that. In fact, it, it, his position, if you know he's pushing Trump to stay in Paris, that's pretty consistent with what the business community writ large wants. And so it's not hard to believe there. My thing is more with with Jared and Ivanka. And and it could very well be that they, uh, you know, that they are pushing Trump to take a more centrist position on any number of these things. But it also just strikes me as like a little disingenuous when something like doesn't happen. And then they come out and take credit for, well, this was going to happen. But because Jared and Ivanka swayed them, it just seems a a bit too, too. One thing that that I think has been overlooked in this whole discussion is the the party's role in all of this. It's not like there's been uh, an outpouring of grief from Republicans or a clamoring for uh, the president from the Republican side to stay in the Paris agreement. I mean, they've been largely silent. There's not a whole lot of pressure. And to me, it's indicative of of where the party stands right now. This is a a party that's not built and forged 
on the East Coast or in California. It is built and forged in the oil patch states, in the energy producing states, in the extraction states. That is the Republican majority. That's the Republican Party today. Uh, and, you know, this was a party that was uh, the House majority was in a lot of ways built on resistance to cap and trade on the idea of a war on coal. And so it shouldn't be that much of a surprise. And it's not like he's going to get that much resistance from the party itself. But where it is a surprise is that the traditional business constituencies that have been so supportive of the party and that the party has, you know, made such efforts to purport to be furthering the uh, the, the sort of interest of uh, that it in many cases, not not it's not universal, but like when Exxon Mobil is coming out and saying stay in Paris and Apple is coming out, those are two ends of the spectrum as far as our economy that are pretty, pretty powerful and and that Trump would be ignoring if yeah. he drew. Apple, one of the signatories to an open letter that was appearing today in the in the Washington editions of the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, uh, signed by 25 U.S. corporations who, in the words of NBC News, who's writing about this, uh, big businesses who may hate uncertainty more than regulation. Um, but I think what Charlie gets to, like this speaks to like the broader evolution of the party that we're talking about, right? There was actually, there was a story in Politico magazine this morning by a Democratic strategist, Jesse Ferguson, talking about how for all the attention that Obama turned Trump voters are getting, that uh, the party and the media and observers of politics should also be spending a lot of time studying Romney turned Clinton voters uh, who are maybe more of the type who might at least tacitly support something like this. I mean, we saw Mitt Romney tweeting about staying in the Paris agreement actually in the last couple of days. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things about um about Trump's decision to pull out was that, as Vogel said, you know, our colleagues, uh, Andrew Susha and Josh Jossie had a great piece about sort of inside this negotiation. But one thing they reported was that it wasn't necessarily that Trump, you know, saw this as a business decision or a policy decision, but just that he felt like uh, the U.S. was getting a raw deal in this. And it speaks to, so much, I think, to how he <clears throat> makes these major decisions. Like, you know, do does he feel like the U.S. is on top of it? Does he feel like he's dominant? Does he feel like the U.S. is getting the best deal, kind of regardless of the outcome of that deal. And I think that that's the way a lot of policy is being made. And I will say on, on the Republican side, the folks who are pushing him to withdraw and even the folks who are just seeking to like explain the decision. I saw Jason Miller, former communications director for the campaign, the transition on CNN, saying this last night. And he, you know, he says, you know, we could stay in this or we could withdraw. And uh, the fact is, some of these countries that we're saying, even Russia and even China are in this, but they are, you know, there are really valid and legitimate questions about the extent to which they are actually abiding by the terms that they promised. And that's the, that is a difference, that if we are in this, we are going to abide by it. And we're going to set up these rules and regulations to ensure that we do. And they maybe not so much. And, and to that extent, it is, you know, there is a little bit of a question about how good of a deal it actually is. That's, that's separate from the question about how good it is for the American economy and the American business to be incentivizing this type of energy production, which is really where the future is and where the jobs are increasing. There are more jobs in solar and wind than there are in coal right now. And you could do anything that you want. You, you can you can talk all you want about about saving coal. This is just the direction it's headed even without you know, uh, this type of government incentivizing or as as uh, sort of uh, free markets also say like government interference in the economy. 
Well, I also feel like they haven't had, you know, just in terms of what they've actually done, uh, you know, they haven't really had legislative victories yet. You know, it doesn't look like tax reform is going to happen this year. The Senate Republicans are writing health care. They have to do the debt ceiling. But, you know, sort of withdrawing from the Paris Climate Agreement is a way to say, oh, you know, we check the box. This is something that we've actually done because it doesn't necessarily require them to act on their own or create a new initiative. It's really just pulling out of an existing thing. But it is something that they can point to as an accomplishment. And so so far, they don't have a lot of those on policy. That's where a lot of the accomplishments have been this year. They've been on executive executive actions. They've been on appointments, things like that, the Supreme Court being yeah, or among them. striking down uh, you know regulations from Obama. That's really where they've gotten the little juice that they have gotten. And many of these measures have, have served to lock down the base. I mean, there's an uh, important political component here that uh, the base is very happy. You see it in the polling results, but, you know, you see it from for a perfect example is the uh, evangelical or social conservative wing. Very happy with the way things have progressed so far. There's also a question. I mean, we talk about with a lot of these executive orders, how much they actually do. And so there's a question here. What, you know, what these executive actions, I should say, what what it would look like, how Trump could withdraw. And so, again, uh, to our colleagues, uh, Andrew Stush and Josh Dawsey, having a breakdown of the possible options of like how this could transpire. Well, if Trump just abides by the formal procedures in the agreement, that would mandate that the withdrawal would not go into effect until at least 2020, November 4, 2020, right around the presidential election. Uh, or he could pull out of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which is the underlying 1992 treaty that governs all of the negotiations. That could make for a speedier pullout, but also more potential sort of backlash. Uh, it would be a sort of a more radical step. Or he could declare that the agreement is a treaty, which would then require a two-thirds majority uh, ratification vote in the Senate. That has not happened, and that would almost certainly fail if the Democrats were to try to make it happen. I don't think the Republicans would. Maybe they would. But anyway, it's not like a he snaps his fingers and he's out sort of thing. Well, let's, let's spin here from one of the most recent decisions the White House has made to to one of the people who's been the real driver behind maybe not this one, but a lot of uh, the decisions that the White House has made in the past. And we're talking about someone we just mentioned before, Jared Kushner. Our second data point is the number 20, and that's how many minutes it took for Jared Kushner to draw the attention of the FBI. Uh, it was the length of a meeting he reportedly had with the Russian ambassador during the Trump transition in which they discussed setting up back-channel communications uh, using Russian government equipment and diplomatic installations in the United States. So, Charlie, in the last few weeks, we've talked a bit about how the appointment of uh, Robert Mueller and his Philadelphia accent has brought the Russia investigation down from kind of this all-consuming boil in Washington to more of a behind-the-scenes simmer as the special counsel's office gets uh, revved up and starts its investigation and uh, things kind of move out of the public eye a little bit. But is it fair to say that this story about Jared Kushner has re-elevated things a little bit? Yeah, I, I don't think it ever really died down. I mean, this is the this is the new Washington. And I think official Washington is settling in around the idea that this is what it's going to be like for four years. The, the chaotic opening weeks were not an aberration. This is the new normal. And Russia serves as the backdrop for everything. Tax reform, the legislative agenda, no matter what it is, Russia, until it gets some kind of resolution, uh, is going to serve as the backdrop. And, you know, the problem with this, I think, for the White House is, is that, it, I mean, it implicates the, their big Russia 
problem, but also it underscores uh, the other big worry about the White House in official Washington, at least, which is the amateur hour aspects of what they do. Uh, You know, you can see in some of the exasperated comments from folks in the intelligence community or in the the diplomatic community, you know, the idea that uh, someone like Jared Kushner was freelancing and, you know, somebody without any experience. And also just that it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to be setting up an unofficial side back channel when you're about to be sworn in as the new administration. You'll have all kinds of uh, means to uh, talk with any country you want to talk to. Yeah. And and I think this one is especially problematic for the White House because it implicates the two big problem spots they have, at least right now, the big glaring areas, one of which is their Russia problem. And the second one is their the competence issue. And the family, right? That the family is like taking on so much of this portfolio. Like what is Kushner doing in this meeting in the first place? And so a lot of sort of like, like with so many of the big decisions that become sort of newsworthy in, in the Trump administration, this it's like we struggle to explain it. It seems like inexplicable. And, um, you know, I always have this like lens through which I apply to these types of scenarios. And it's like if at one end of the spectrum of possible explanations you have like – incredibly calculated deviousness. And on the other end, you just have ham-handed clumsiness. It's almost always closer to ham-handed clumsiness, as Charlie suggested. I think that's the case here as well. The one thing, though, that I would point out that I think could help at least contextualize what may have been going on in this meeting is that Mike Flynn, star of the Russia investigations, one of the primary targets of the Russia investigations, was in this meeting as well. And Mike Flynn had this deep and abiding suspicion towards the U.S. intelligence community generally and the CIA particularly that my sources in the intelligence community say they feared was was sort of permeating the entire Trump organization from Donald Trump himself, who, if you remember, during the campaign, used air quotes to describe intelligence and was beating up on the intelligence community over its failures in the run up to the Iraq war on weapons of mass destruction, you know, all the way down through Jared Kushner. And so Mike Flynn may have, in fact, had reason to be suspicious. I mean, clearly now we know that he uh, should have been more careful in his communications with the Russians, but that he also had this, like, suspicion of the intelligence community. He may have been pushing Kushner to try to set up a channel of communication that was outside of the prying ears or eyes of the intelligence community. What's ironic here, he may have thought that this back channel was the way to do that. But if you talk to anyone in the intelligence world, they'll tell you that, like, what is he going to, like, walk into a Russian consulate to go use their, like, skiff, their secure room? Like, those things are under constant surveillance. So a little bit of, like, an explanation, Flynn's suspicion and the Trump team's suspicion of the intelligence community, and also a little bit of an inexplicable clumsiness. If this is your way to evade that, it's the wrong way. Nancy, how is all this affecting the White House and how it's working at this point? We've seen the possibly the beginnings of a staff shakeup this week. Uh, there's always talk about new people coming in. How is this story in particular and the Russia investigation more broadly affecting how they're working? Well, it's just hugely distracting. And and we've talked about this on the podcast before. Like, we don't even really know if anything major will come out of the Russia investigations, if there will be that smoking gun. But in the meantime, it has completely distracted the whole White House. Uh, you know, everyone 
there, wants to know what's going on. You know, every day there's sort of a new huge bombshell story that drops usually in the late afternoon. So White House aides are very distracted by this. Their policy agenda is sort of on hold because both the House and Senate are investigating the Russia thing um, and they have other things that they have to do. So they're not going to be able to push through major packages because they're dealing with all these responding to all these other things. And then the other the other question that's happening is, you know, Trump uh, and the White House still really hasn't filled a huge number of positions. You know, just two weeks ago, we saw the number two at Treasury drop out of contention uh, before he was supposed to have his confirmation hearing. That's a huge blow to tax reform, let's say. And so, you know, very few competent Republican operatives and policy people are going to want to join an administration that is clouded in so much potential scandal when they're not sure what's going to happen with Russia. So it's totally affecting their hiring, too. You know, we had a story yesterday about how Russiagate, if you will, was complicating recruitment. One of the points, the, the the data points in there that I thought was so telling, Trump has nominated people for just 117 of 559 of the top Senate confirmable position. That's just nominated, let alone confirmed. I assume a lot of them are confirmed. But nonetheless, I mean, that's a super slow clip. And, you know, the funny thing is, uh, funny, uh, ironic, interesting thing is that when we put this earlier in the presidency to folks in the administration, why they were proceeding so slowly on this is that, well, it's actually part of their plan to deconstruct the administrative state that they weren't nominating people for these position. I'm like, that's not how you do it. If you want to deconstruct things, you nominate your people and then they fire people who are already in there, who are you know, civil servants or holdovers for the previous administration. Uh, this speaks more to, I think, incompetence and difficulty in recruitment than it does to any kind of calculated plan. Well, I also think the other thing that's happening is, you know, in addition to sort of slowing down the whole agenda, Trump is also thinking amid all of the terrible press about firing uh, former FBI Director Comey and the Russia investigations, you know, he's thinking about bringing back in some campaign people that also caused him quite a lot of headaches, like Corey Lewandowski, who Ken has written about extensively. And so, you know, there's all this question about when a shakeup is going to happen and what it's going to look like. But he also may be bringing back into the fold um, some pretty combative people to help him fight these negative stories. Yeah, my sources tell me that Corey is going around telling people that uh, he uh, that Trump wants him to come in to, quote, knock some heads together. So, you know, Trump may see it as restoring order or setting up a Russia war room, but this is how Corey sees it. Corey sees it as knocking heads together. Yeah. And and, and I think that's the, that is very much the approach that he took during the campaign and during the power struggle that he waged with Paul Manafort for control of the campaign during those critical you know, uh, spring and summer months when Trump was trying to bring the party together, Corey was spending most of his time fighting an internal power struggle. So I just don't see how that type of approach is going to help the Trump administration navigate itself through these choppy waters of the Russia invest- investigation, the rifts in the Republican Party and all this stuff like just Corey is is not that guy. This I, this sounds like an intensification of what we talked about a little bit in the first segment, that there are these wings of the White House that are fighting against each other on everything that goes on behind the scenes. That's true. And bringing Corey back in um, or, you know, other campaign people like that will just sort of add a new faction to an already very factionalized White House that already, you know, doesn't get along with each other. Charlie, uh, amidst all of this, you, you've you been watching some of the polling pretty closely on how 
the country and, and voters, registered voters, likely voters, whatever, are, are reacting to all this. Something stood out to you in the latest Politico Morning Consult poll uh, about the number of uh, people starting to think about and consider impeachment as a likely option among voters, even as Democratic leaders shy away from it. The impeachment story has been uh, sort of a tricky subject, uh, I think, for the media and certainly for us and, you know, in conversations that, that I've had with Steve Shepard, our uh, polling guru and um, and others. It's a tricky subject because you want to be responsible in how you cover it. And right now, uh, even though I, I think most people don't recognize it, but the, the, the truth is that it is a political fantasy this far out. And that is why Democratic leadership uh, is, you know, wants its members to tamp down the talk of impeachment. Political fantasy from the point that the numbers aren't there, right? That impeachment is a political process. Yeah, let me be specific. It, it is, when I say it's a fantasy, it is just, impeachment is not a judicial a judicial process. It is a political process. It's it's sort of a quasi-political, quasi-judicial process. But, you, but the bottom line is you have to have the numbers in Congress to make it happen. So uh, as long as the Democrats don't have the numbers in Congress, uh, it's highly unlikely to happen. And the second part of it is there really isn't that as Democratic leaders are telling some of their members, we we don't we are going to get stuck in this uh, morass of talking about impeachment, and it's not going to uh, help us in our ultimate goals. It's going to drown our message. It's going to be a big problem as long as we keep talking about something that can't happen without more facts coming forward. And so that is the ba- the backdrop for the polling that that we wrote about yesterday, which which uh, I thought reached the the threshold because we we saw over a week in the uh, Politico Morning Consult poll a significant gradual rise in the percentage of folks that uh, favored impeachment. And uh, it went from 38% last week to 43% in our most recent poll. Although it's important to note that there are still 45% of people who oppose impeachment. So there's still more, just to your point, that not only, you know, from from a procedural standpoint and from a, a congressional support standpoint is the support not there, there, there's still more people than not who would prefer that we not proceed with impeachment. Yeah, and it's also, the numbers were also instructive. It's still a minority of people, but it is a rising number. But uh, the other interesting thing about what the poll found was even the folks who support impeachment right now uh, understand that there isn't really, uh, or or at least they acknowledge in the way we ask the questions, they fully acknowledge that their desire to impeach Donald Trump is for political considerations. It's not out of the belief that Trump is actually guilty of impeachable offenses like treason or bribery or obstructing justice. They just want him out. And so right now, what you know, if you look at the numbers, it's pretty significant. I mean, that's a lot of people. That's more than four out of 10 people want him impeached. But if you look at the numbers and you drill down to what they're saying, it goes to show you it still really hasn't penetrated much beyond the Democratic base into where it might become a more viable reality. And the way we phrase the question in that uh, morning console political poll is telling as well of that was 43 percent who want impeachment, 54 percent of the pro impeachment people believe he has, quote, proven he is unfit to serve and should be removed from office regardless of whether he has committed an impeachable offense or not. So they're basically admitting like this is this is politics for us uh, or we disagree with Trump on, on many issues, perhaps, but that there is not grounds. Yeah, Ken, that that really I mean, it's almost a continuation of what we've seen for the last 15 years. There have only been a few months where 
like a majority of the people who disapprove of the sitting president haven't strongly disapproved. And there's this, this strong undercurrent of hatred for whatever president is in office that's been going on for a while. And this is in some ways the logical extension of that polarization, baby. Let's jump from what we think Congress is not going to do in impeachment to some of the stuff that Congress is going to be trying to do over the next few months. But first, let's take a quick break to hear from a sponsor. All right. Sticking with Congress and what they can or can't do over the next few months, our third data point of this episode is the number 57. And that is the number of days between now and the beginning of the August congressional recess, just under two months. And as Senator John Cornyn told KFYO Radio in Texas this week, that is the Senate's deadline for passing an Obamacare repeal bill. Let's listen to what Cornyn had to say. Do you think that we can get a repeal and replace of Obamacare done by the end of 2017? Oh, absolutely. We'll get it done by the end of July at the latest. That sounds good. So, Ken, you see the beginning of August not just as a marker in the year, but as something approaching a hard deadline for Republicans to notch some big accomplishments this year, not just on uh, Obamacare repeal, but on some other stuff, too. Why is that? Well, it's not, it's not just me who sees it this way. There are folks in the White House Ledge Affair shop who actually know what they're doing, which is a small minority of the uh, Trump administration. But nonetheless, these folks serve – there are some veterans there like Mark Short who, who know the way the legislative process works. And they are trying to push Senate Republicans this month, June, to vote on a repeal of the Affordable Care Act uh, as well as pushing forward the, the, the tax cuts uh, and even – uh, starting to consider infrastructure because they know that once you go to recess, you give a chance for these uh, Democratic and liberal groups to really put the heat on. There's already enough heat out there, but to harness that heat, get the, the big crowds to come out to town halls to give them a hard time. So the other uh, issue that they have to deal with is funding the government. And so uh, if they're unable to uh, you know, push through a funding bill or a debt ceiling increase before the recess, which seems like a heavy lift, and that's going to dominate after the recess. And at that point, you are pretty much into 2018 midterm campaign mode and good luck getting anything through then. And I've talked to Republicans as well in the administration and then also just operatives. And there's this real sense, particularly for longtime people who have been around Washington, there's a sense that they're just not going to have anything to show voters. Like they're not going to be able to say, you know, look, we repealed Obamacare or we did tax reform. And there was so much that Trump said he was going to do immediately, like repealing Obamacare, that there's really a growing concern that they won't have anything to show. And it's hard to just try to package like a bunch of executives orders as your main accomplishment of the first several months of an administration. And Trump, we understand, is becoming increasingly frustrating. In fact, it's not just us and our sources. He took to Twitter uh, to blame Democrats and say that the Senate should change its longstanding rules and, quote, switch to 51 and, quote, votes to pass health care changes and uh, a tax bill instead of working to get 60 votes and a, a potential filibuster. Well, news bulletin, the Senate is already trying to pass health care and tax changes with just 51 votes, uh, and it's not able to do so because of splits within the GOP as opposed to Democrats. So uh, it, it shows when I when talk about the sort of lack of uh, understanding the process that that starts from the top with Trump. Uh, nonetheless, you see the frustration really seeping through in a way that has not thus far been been productive. Trump's efforts to whip votes on the the uh, AHCA, 
was a spectacular failure, one of the biggest black marks of the presidency thus far. While there are efforts by the White House Ledger Affairs Shop to uh, push some of these things along, it just it does not look good at this point. And it doesn't seem like the calendar has gotten the uh, appropriate level of attention that it should get, because if you're talking in terms of legislative days, meaning if there's 57 days until the August recess, that's not the same as legislative days in which they'll actually be working uh, in Washington. Uh, and so uh, there is so little time to get done the most complicated polarizing issues. And the idea that, you know, you're going to have several of them done before the recess is, you know, just kind of crazy. There's no way. It's never worked that way. And it, ne- and it never will. The system's not built when we don't have the bandwidth to, to do that. Meanwhile, we've seen in the uh, first year of the last two presidential terms that the the August recess has taken on this role as this time when things really start to get a little crazy for for legislators. There's a lot of pressure put on them. So in 2009, Democrats faced a ton of backlash over health care in town hall after town hall. Beginning of the Tea Party movement, really. And then in 2013, we saw Republican legislators going home over summer and slowly but surely more and more uh, grabbing onto this idea that they were not going to fund the government unless uh, Obamacare was defunded and ultimately repealed, which ultimately ended up shutting down the government for the late summer, early fall. Yeah, but let's stick with the 2009 example, because that's the one that I think is most applicable here. Uh, and and it's a, the parallels are, are pretty close. I mean, the Democrats are headed into that. They were had gone through this long and deliberative process to try to pull together the votes and the constituencies to pass what became Obamacare. Uh, and Republicans were, you know, getting getting, getting their uh, troops sort of whipped up into a frenzy. And this is when this is uh, when these protests really started uh, in August of, of uh, 2009. And that really generated the momentum and the grassroots fervor that the Tea Party was able to harness that ended up in sweeping uh, Republican victories in the 2010 midterms, giving Republicans the House and then uh, allowing them to essentially dig in their heels and stop dead in its tracks the rest of the Obama legislative agenda. Not to say Obama didn't get other things done. Trump, to this point, if we look at the analogy, has not yet had a significant legislative achievement. And as Charlie suggested, the clock is ticking down. So if he doesn't get it before, you know, that's why this recess is such a big deal. If he doesn't get it before this recess, it becomes increasingly unlikely he'll get it before the midterms. And who knows what happens if Democrats have a wave election in the in, in the House in the midterms. It would seem increasingly less likely for him to get anything done through Congress. I'm curious to see what Trump's standing is going to be like in legislators' eyes after the recess. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is that this is going to be the most extended period of time which members of Congress are going to be back in their districts. And, you know, for all the criticism that uh, lawmakers get, whether it's the House or Senate, uh, and much of it deserved, one thing that can't be said about them is that they're disconnected from the places they come from. They may live here. They, you know, they may not know anyone back home, but they know what people are thinking. Very finely yeah. tuned. And, to uh, Finely tuned political antenna, especially the House members. And, and when they're there for an extended period of time, they're going to have a very good idea of what their constituents think of Donald Trump. And I'll be curious to know uh, whether there is some erosion in his support among the Republican base. Uh, they will know just how much rage is out there. They'll have a much better feel for it. And it could be that they come back either with renewed respect for Trump and, and 
determined to sort of weather the storm and think all this is a is a media creation, or they will understand that the president is not nearly as uh, strong or ha- does not have nearly the depth of support that they once thought, and they will begin changing their tune. Well, and I think that will be really indicative for what the next year of the Trump presidency looks like, because I think that Republicans uh, in Congress never really love Trump for the most part. And I think that there are two things that are keeping them stuck together with Trump. One is this idea that they'll be able to accomplish, you know, a lot of big policy things. I think that that's why Speaker Ryan, you know, eventually got on board with Trump. And two, the idea that a lot of these people, a lot of the lawmakers are in districts where Trump won. And I feel like if there's a erosion of support with that base and or it doesn't look like the policy is going to get done that Republicans have long wanted, you'll see people break away. And that but that could be really significant for Trump, particularly if Congress is in the middle of the Russia investigation, let's say. You know, one other deadline that's looming even sooner than this August recess is on June 20th. And that's when the special election in the for the open Georgia House race is happening. And I think that's worth keeping in mind, too, because we're talking about the the momentum necessary to get things done and the time. But when you look at that, what happens if in, like Nancy said, one of these districts that Trump won just by a couple points, but before that, every other Republican presidential candidate in recent memory had won by 10, 20 points. What happens if Republicans lose a seat like that? Are they able to muster the uh, momentum to take tough votes on, say, tax reform or, you know, Obamacare appeal has already cleared the House in, in this instance. But in the Senate, you've got, say, someone like Dean Heller, who's representing a state that uh, Hillary Clinton won and Obama won twice before that and is up for reelection in 2018. How does the special election result potentially affect that sort of thing if it does turn into a Democratic win, which at this point, let's be clear, it's it's pretty much a true toss up. Well, I think it just would be another data point on potential uh, erosion of the base for Trump. Although the special election in Montana, the Republican was victorious. But I do know Republicans in Washington that I talk to are really watching the Georgia special election as a potential harbinger of things that could happen in 2018 if they're not careful. And I think uh, it, it will unnerve House Republicans. Uh, not to the degree, though, if they had lost Montana and Georgia. I think the Montana race was very important for House Republicans because it turned out to be not nearly as close as, as we thought. And I think they breathed a sigh of relief and also understood that maybe there was some hyperventilating about uh, you know the degree of, of hostility that's out there toward, uh, toward Trump uh, in a red state. And so that, I think, maybe calmed the seas a little bit. But a Georgia loss definitely unnerves them. I also think, though, that a Georgia loss has the prospect of maybe throwing a curve at the White House as well, because from all indications, we know that the White House was watching, at least up until the initial primary race, watching very closely. Bannon was getting regular reports about it. Uh, The president weighed in. And so uh, I think this is something that the, the White House will be watching just as closely as Congress will be. Nancy, really quickly, uh, as we finish up here, what is the latest on a new health care reform, Obamacare repeal, moving through uh, the Senate? I was struck seeing some comments from Chuck Grassley and Joni Ernst the other day, Iowa's Republican senators, sounding a little bit pessimistic about the, the prospects here. Yeah, I feel like the Senate Republicans are now supposed to be writing their version of the bill. But I think that, you know, it's unclear what they'll actually produce. And they're going to rewrite, do something totally unique and different from what the House did, because a lot of the House things in the Senate, at least, are viewed as too extreme and you won't get enough of consensus in Republicans. And I think it could be the kind of thing where 
where, you know, they end up taking quite a while to write their version of the bill if they end up doing it at all, because they don't want to put themselves in a politically perilous situation by making too deep of cuts to Medicaid or, uh, you know, getting rid of uh, essential benefits that cover pre-existing conditions. You know, the margins in the Senate are much uh, smaller and there are a bunch of Republicans up for re-election who don't necessarily want to have to defend those tough votes in states where either Medicaid expansion has been popular or just the ACA is popular. All right. Well, we'll be keeping an eye on that, Nancy. Thank you for the update. Thank you all for being here this week. Thank you, Nancy. Oh, thanks for having me. Ken Vogel, thank you. Fun time as always. Thank you as always. And Charlie Matessian. Are we not going to talk about the fact that Ken Vogel was a clue in your time Sunday Crossword puzzle? <laughs> I mean, he's been insufferable ever since. <laughs> well, I did get that tattoo that said 66 down. But other than that, <laughs> I got rubbed it in your face too much, Charlie. Ken, you're a star. Thanks, Scott. All right. That is it from us. Again, as always, a big thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can email your questions to us at nerdcast at politico.com. And please, if you have the time, review us on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform in addition to subscribing and rating the Nerdcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you to our executive producer, Bridget Mulcahy, our illustrator, Bill Cookman, and Politico web producer and Nerdcast researcher, Zach Montalaro. We will speak to you again next week. <laughs>